Church in Evansville, Indiana. Be sure to subscribe for weekly updates and visit us at resurgencecommunity.com. Okay, so last week we began a series on how do you study your Bible. Uh, the Bible is a book that is unlike any other book that's ever been written, or regardless of whatever kind of historical literature you want to try to throw out there. It's the only book I know of has over 40 different authors written in three different languages, three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, all with one common theme. Uh, no other book on the face of the earth can make any kind of claim like that, and that's what makes the Bible superior to any other religious book. Uh, whether you want to say the Pearl of Great Price or the Quran or anything like that, the Bible is supreme and superior to all of those things. They all pale in comparison to it. And uh, the problem is, is a lot of times we read it, a lot of times we don't study it. How do we how do we get the most out of it? How do we unearth things? Uh, if we want to talk about it in like baby terms, how do we end up learning how to feed ourselves? Uh, and so that's what we're going through. And last week we talked about observe, observe, observe. Anytime that you are given anything like that, observe, 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 observe. And so we gave some homework on the back of our paper. Some of you will have us that were here last week. Some of you left it. Uh, your dog ate it. Whatever classic homework excuse you want to use. Uh, but it was jo it was Joshua 1:8. We've got it up on the on the on the screen and everything. We do. Does that work? Okay, that works. Cool. <clears throat> and so let's read through real quick. The book of the law shall this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Real quick, one thing that will help you observe in the Bible better is read it out loud. You read things out loud a lot differently than how you speak out loud, or, or how you would just read it on your own. I'm sorry, you would speak things differently than how you would just read it on your own. So here's some questions we ask. What automatically stands out to you? What? God is talking. God is talking. Okay, how did we know that? From reading on the rest of it. The reason is, is because you can never just take one verse out by its own and, and that be your banner verse. You have got to know the context around it. Context is everything. Did you guys know that the Bible says there is no God? The Bible says that. If I eliminate the context. If I add the context, it says the fool says in his heart there is no God. You see what I'm saying? I've actually had an atheist use that on me. The Bible says there is no God. Context. Okay. Um, so what automatically stands out? God is speaking. What else? What are some other things? Who in here didn't do their homework? Raise your hand. All right. I like sinners. Awesome. Um, just playing. It's okay. If you weren't here, God gives you a pass. You were giving coffee to people. Excellent excuse. I was serving. I didn't have time to read. Hmm. What would God want you to do? Uh, just kidding. What are some other things? Well, I mean, we've all got the verse in front of us right now. What stands out? The law shall not depart from your mouth. Interesting. What does it mean if something is not departing from your mouth? What's going on with it? It stays, it stays there. And what happens? Obviously, you're not like holding it in your mouth. It's like, I can't take this out of my mouth. That's not what it means. Of course, we know that. But what? You're speaking it. You're speaking it forward to other people. Here's an interesting thing. Anytime somebody comes to you and asks advice about something, don't tell them what you think. Okay? Because you're wrong. Okay? When people come to me and ask me for advice or counsel on something, I never tell them what I think because I'm always wrong. Instead, give them what God's Word says. That's always right. 
Okay, that's a, that's a sure way you can know. And if something goes bad, it, it was on them, not on you. Okay, you gave them the truth. So, not to depart from your mouth. What else? Meditate on it day and night. That means you were to be saturated with it. Here's one thing I observed that I thought was kind of bothersome. As the church, what do we do? The book of the law. Does that mean that we should only be concerned with the first five books? Only the first five books should be on, on our lips, speaking to people. We, we should not let it depart from us. We should meditate on it day and night. Is that what it means? It's speaking directly to Israel at this point. It's speaking to Israel. That's important. Know who the audience is, who's being spoken to. But what else? There is no New Testament at this time. In fact, if we think about it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what? That's it. Joshua. That's all, that's all they have is the first five books. So, of course, they couldn't include anything else. So, the book of the law, if we were to transfer that to how does this apply to us today? Well, this would apply to us today, especially the rest of the Bible. Notice, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. It's instructions for how you ought to live your life. Now, are we required to keep the law now? No, because Christ is the end of the law for, all who are, for righteousness to all who believe, Romans 10.4. We understand that. Compare the Bible, compare your scripture that you have with what you know from the rest of scripture. Notice this, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now let me ask you, if you read through the law and if you seek to live according to it, not because you're trying to earn salvation, but because you just want to live a holy and chaste life, is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to go about and, and every, every Saturday, which would be Saturday for them, the Sabbath, every Saturday you want to observe that, awesome. That's set aside for you and God. If you're a farmer and you want to plant for six years and you don't want to plant for the seventh year because you want to observe what God's instructed there as far as how to deal with the land, awesome. I think that God is going to bless that as long as we don't turn it into Judaism. Okay, the way that Judaism came about was they took the law and they said, let's make this a checklist on how to get saved. That's not what it's for. Okay, some other questions we have. What kind of word is but? Remember this? It's a what? Contrasting. contrasting something. What are they contrasting in the verse? Book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but... What? This isn't hard, guys. Come on, it's right in front of you. But you shall meditate on it day and night. So that why? You may be careful to do, all, uh, do according to all that's written in it. In other words, it's correcting us. It's showing us what ought to be done. Anybody in here ever been told, well, you Christians just don't think for yourselves? Anybody been told that? Anybody tried thinking for themselves? <laughs> yeah. Anybody get messed up doing it? Yes. Yes. That's why we should meditate on the book of the law. Uh, let's see here. Let's, let's go down to uh, what terms need defining. One of the most important books you can have with your Bible, Webster's Dictionary. Webster and Jesus, they go together. Not... Webster, okay? Webster. That'd be awesome if Webster had a diction. Never mind. Remember him? George and Ma'am? Anybody remember that episode where he walked in on George and Ma'am having sex with one another? That was crazy. Yeah. Not that they would have been doing it with anybody else, but that's that a crazy episode. Anyway, moving on. That was like the pivotal episode of that whole series. I was like, oh my gosh, can you remember? Um, what terms need defining? Are there any terms that need to be defined? Meditate. Mmm. 
meditate. What in the world does it mean? A-E-I-O-U. Meditate. That had nothing to do with it. Meditate, meditate, meditate. To, to deliberate or consider to spend time in quiet contemplation. To spend time in quiet contemplation. You know one of the best things you can ever do? A lot of times we think just because we've listened to, to Chris Tomlin for 14 hours that somehow we've spent time with Jesus and that's not what it is. Take a verse that you're meditating on, that you're studying on, write it down on a 3 by 5 card, start to memorize it. Just say it over and over. If it's longer, memorize it in chunks. Memorize the first part of it. And then as you're driving, still pay attention to the road. But focus on it. And ask God, God, show me what you want me to know out of this. There, there is some nugget of truth in here somewhere that's going to impact my life. That's the way that the Word of God is written. Please show me, reveal to me how it can apply to me, how it can blow my mind. Uh, what times or places are mentioned? Times and places. Day and night. Day and night. How does this verse relate to the rest of the book? Does anybody, anybody know, who is Joshua? He's taken over from Moses. He has been a leader in training for a long, long time. Real quick, I've got a bunch of books up here, and so I'm going to start throwing them at you. Not throwing them at you. Showing them to you. <laughs> Doc! Uh, showing them to you one by one. This is what's known as an illustrated Bible dictionary. Okay? Now, with Christmas coming up, get out your notes and write down some Christmas list stuff. Okay? This is a Bible dictionary. If I want to know anything about Joshua... I can turn in here and it's going to summarize for me everything that I would possibly need to know about Joshua. In fact, let's just find out. I'm not going to read to you everything that it says. But just to give you an illustration of what it looks like. And here's the reason why. is because a lot of times it's very beneficial to know that everybody else has already done the work for you. And they've summarized it up in about six paragraphs. Joshua starts here, tells all about him in the Old Testament. even gives you a map in order to deal with that. Goes on down through here. Excellent. Okay, everything that you would need to know, right there, one page. All you got to do is read it. You know all the major things about Joshua that you would need to have down. So, how does this verse relate to the rest of the book? Joshua is taking over for Modus. Uh, Mo Modus. <laughs> Moses. Or Modus. Malachi, Malachi, whatever. <coughs> Moses. Now he is leading the people. And, and he is a hardcore leader. He has been brought up, and he from very early on, him and Caleb were telling the people, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. And they said, no, don't trust the Lord. And that's why they ended up running around for 40 years. Okay? And so now that he's moving forward, if, you're, if you know anything about the book of Joshua, you also see things he says about choose this day whom you will serve. Now that we're in the land, and God's divided up the land, and you guys are going to go, still continue to serve the Lord. How does this relate to the rest of the book? This is pivotal in understanding the prosperity for Israel for the rest of their existence. Because when you see Israel screwed up was they got caught up worshiping something else. They got caught up in, oh, these women over here are sexy, but they're foreign. Oh, well, let's go hang out with them. Great. So they go hang out with them. They get married. Next thing you know, they're all devoted to pagan gods now, and they've rejected the God who saved them. So God was really trying to keep this on your mind and let it guide your path in order to keep you from any kind of sin or harm. Now, what? Go for it. Speaking for the old people in the room, which is me, <laughs> it might be nice to know that Josh was also the oldest person in the nation. Awesome. I, I would have known that if I would have read through the Bible dictionary. <laughs> Joshua is the oldest. Because all 
the rest of the people died out because they didn't cross the Jordan. That's true. Is Caleb still living at that time? Yes, but he was younger than Joshua. He was younger than Joshua. Okay. So Joshua is the oldest dude there. So, and just real quick, that's, that's very interesting because when you kind of think about that kind of leadership that goes on, if you read the book of Titus, if you read the book of Titus and you see the older men in the church are to raise up the younger men to teach them how to act, we have a problem here at that church because we don't have a lot of older guys. I love the one about the women. Young, uh, older women, train up the younger women to love their husbands. Why? Because guys are gross. <laughs> and girls have to be taught how to love them. Just hang out with a guy, you know. Hey, baby, you know. I mean, that's that's how that's how guys are. And they're like, I gotta love that. And they're like, Come here, dear, I'll teach you. And it's really all about manipulation. Get them to do what you want. So, so anyway, interesting stuff. <clears throat> I tell you what, we're going to talk about interpretation today. Let me just run through these so I can get them out of the way. It's not that they're not important, but I want to deal with them. This right here is, is, a, is a book, and I'm not saying this is the only book. This is just something I picked up recently. Tyndale's Handbook to Bible Charts and Maps. You remember last week when we talked about observing and people had lined out books of the Bible? Here's the prophet Malachi and everything that they have lined out about him. They will also have in here different maps of where the journeys were. There you go. Key passages and things to look for as far as the geography of Matthew. Books like this are extremely helpful whenever you're going along and they say that they went to um, Jerusalem. Well, you need to know what's located close to Jerusalem and where it's at. Maybe you're dealing with some hardcore theology things. I love Norman Geisler. The dude is smarter than he, any human being should possibly be. Uh, this is volume four of his four-volume systematic theology thing, and look how thick it is. It's just on the church and the end times. That's it. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, some guys have got a lot of time on their hands, but it's interesting stuff. Um, another good one that's real important, the works of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian at that time. He wasn't a believer, but he testifies to the resurrection of Christ in his historical writings. And so anytime that you're reading through the Bible and you're like, man, this is kind of weird. I don't totally understand this. If you read through here and try to look up the time if Josephus has documented something about it, you find out what was going on politically, historically at that time. Uh, another, another book that's a favorite of mine, in fact, I don't even think they make this anymore, uh, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Commentary is real useful. I don't know what Romans chapter 5 verse 20 means. Awesome. You turn here and this guy helps you from the study that he's done of what he believes that it means. Now, people who write commentaries are not God-inspired by Jesus, holy, infallible, inerrant, okay? So understand that this is their understanding and interpretation of what they have read. We're actually going to see an example of that when we get done by somebody that I sharply disagree with, uh, who's very popular right now in their interpretation of a certain verse, since we're talking about interpretation. This is another thing. My wife bought this for me when we got engaged. Oh, it's a sweet little present. And uh, she's actually marked verses in there for me to look at, which I thought was nice. She's a sweet girl. Um, so if you go through this, this is what's known as a Hebrew Greek study Bible, uh, Hebrew Greek keyword study Bible. And as you go through, if you'll notice, if you can see this, some of the words in here are underlined and they got little numbers next to them. All you do is for the Old Testament, of course, for Hebrew, you find the number, you go back here to the back, you look at it, they actually have it written in Hebrew for you, how to pronounce it in a definition of what it would have meant at that time. It's extremely helpful whenever you're reading something, you're like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? And you might not understand. Doing a word study on something and being able to pull it in the original language like this, interesting stuff. Now there's some other websites, Bible.org, that'll help you, Crosswalk.com, I think it is, different things like that. I use a Bible software called Logos Bible Software. It's 
the most powerful, I, I sometimes wonder if it's got something to do with the mark of the beast, I don't know. But it's like a super powerful deal that, that is able to study the Bible out for you and it's really cool stuff. So anyway, with all that being said, let's take our Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is one of the most uh, confusing parts of Scripture uh, for a lot of people. And I'll be honest with you, when I first got saved and I first read it, I seriously debated cutting off my hand and poking out my eyes. So I think it's very important for us to look at it. We're going to start in verse 27. <coughs> it says here in Matthew 5, 27, if you don't have a Bible, whatever, the screens uh, will be able to give, a, give you the Scriptures. It says here, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, if you've, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, if you've ever lusted at all, or if you've ever stolen anything, and if we took this absolutely literally, guess what? There's going to be a lot of hobbly people coming to our church. In fact, everybody's going to have something missing somewhere. And that'd be a good way to know people's sins, huh? Be like, so you lust, you know? And, they're not, they can't see you. But I mean, think about that. It, what is Jesus saying here? How are we supposed to take this? How, is it, how are we supposed to take this? Does anybody know the body of Scripture that surrounds this? It's, it's pretty famous. Anybody know? The Sermon on the Mount. I've had pastors say the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest gospel presentation there is in the Bible. Guess what? You can't find the gospel in it. It's not in there. It not, it, it no time does it ever say, trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Never. Never. It's never in there. Does anybody know what the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the purpose of Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount was for? Anybody know? Well, number one, does anybody, of course Jesus is speaking. Does anybody know who his audience is? Jews. So that tells us something that they're a little removed from where we are. Am I correct? So what he's going to be telling them is something extremely different. So, anybody know? If he's speaking to Jews, and he says things like, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall not hurt the earth. Things like that. It's kind of hard for us to relate to exactly what he's saying. We think, Breck. Well, he's talking to his disciples. It says that he called his disciples to him and he spoke to them. Okay. And he's telling them about the kingdom. Okay. In the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. Right. And his commentary on the law has a lot to do with, you've heard it said this way, or you've read it this way, but I'm here to tell you what it means. Now, here's the thing. If you just don't physically, uh, it, let's, let's say that you, do, you don't physically commit adultery, but you think it in your mind. A lot of people before this time when Jesus came up and was refining it for everybody's understanding, they thought, oh, well, I'm totally good. I'm sin free. I didn't touch her. I didn't anything to do with her. You know? I wasn't here to buy anything. I was just shopping. That kind of thing. Right? I was just looking. Looking, but not touching. Well, notice Jesus comes up and he gets a lot more pointed with it. 
And what you find is as you go through here that Jesus is doing a lot more with, you know what, you guys have been living according to works for so long. It's not about your works. Because even your best works are wrong before God. Let's say that, that you don't touch her, but you do lust after her in your mind. You've still committed a sin. You've still done wrong. Now, with that being said, I want to go over some things real quick about interpreting the Bible. So, Dave, let's go to the next thing. Six pitfalls when interpreting Scripture. If you want to write these down in your note section, I highly encourage it. Go ahead. <clears throat> Number one, misreading the text. In other words, reading it to say something that it doesn't say. Let's give an example here. Look at John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Does Jesus say that he is a way or the way? Which one? The way. The way. Not much room for squirming there, is it? Yet a lot of people will say, oh, well, Jesus really said a way. He's only a way, and therefore that makes everybody else's beliefs just as elevated as yours is, and everybody else is valid, and everybody can worship their own God because everybody's going the same place. It's not what the Bible says. What's the next one? Number two, distorting the text. This is when you make Scripture say what you want it to say instead of what it really says. Anybody remember this? Yeah. Twisting the text. Twist it up. Go ahead, Dave. What's the next one? Luke 18, 19. Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to say that Jesus was or is not deity. Are they right? Everybody take your Bibles and let's look at that. Luke chapter 18. Here's what it says. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, if you remember this, this is when the rich ruler comes up to him. And he asks him what? Let's back up one. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is very clear. Why do you call me good? Only God's good. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses use this as one of their pivotal verses. This is one of their foundations. If you remove this pillar, everything comes crashing down on their belief about how they view the Bible. Okay? This is one of the pivotal things. They say, well, see, Jesus was not God. He was not a deity whatsoever. There's, there, there's no way. He was just born and, and probably just a special guy and a good teacher. That was it. How do we handle this? Are they distorting the text? Okay, they are. Brett? They don't take in consideration the context. Okay, which is? Well, this guy comes up to Jesus and he calls him a good teacher. If he's going to call him a good teacher, then Jesus taking this, oh, so you see me as a teacher. Okay, if I'm just a teacher, why are you calling me good? Mm -hmm. And that's what any decent rabbi would have said. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, so, so Jesus is addressing this guy as an unbeliever. Right, and notice what he says. Let me go back to it real quick. Who is good? No one is good except God alone. Does everybody see that maybe Jesus was trying to show him, of, man, all my works testify that I'm good, and you can qualify me, and your thinking is good, because they set really high standards at that time. So this should tell them what? That Jesus is what? Anybody know? God. Jesus is God. Exactly. And see, that's what's interesting. The very text that they use to distort it and say that he's not a deity actually proves that he is when you add the context around it. Go to the next one. Contradicting the text. Genesis 3, 1 through 4. Satan questions God's word. This is why Jesus calls Satan a liar in John 8, 44. Remember, Satan comes up and he says, Did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? 
Remember? And what does Eve do? He said that we shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Uh, we can eat of any tree in the garden, but not the one in the middle of the garden, or touch it, lest we die. Did God ever say anything about touching the tree? No, no they could have went over and just thrown their bodies all over it if they wanted to, as long as they weren't eating from that tree. But it didn't say anything about touching it. Notice, because Satan caused them to question what God said, it caused them to add to God's Word. Satan does that now. Satan will constantly come to us and ask, did God really say this? And a lot of times we're like, oh, well, I don't know. I'll just use my best judgment on it. Don't. Your best judgment is wrong. Go back to the Scripture and find it out. Next one, number four. Subjectivism. Too many Christians wait for, wait for goosebumps to affirm their faith. This is an irrational approach to the Bible. It doesn't matter what it says. It matters if it makes you feel oh so toasty. Right? Anybody got any toasty passages in the Bible? Anything that you read and you're just like, hmm, Jesus love me more. Anybody? Anybody? Go ahead, Breck. What's your toasty scripture? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, we, we've got some. Uh, the Psalms. The Psalms are actually meant to play on emotions. But should emotions dictate how you view life from that? No, it needs to be dictated from the facts of Scripture. I love, I don't remember where it's at, but I love the verse. The voice of the Lord causes the deer to give birth. I think that's amazing. I think that's awesome when I think about God speaking and all of a sudden deers are just like, nah, in labor and just, that, I just... When I really think about what that verse says, listen, when I meditate on it day and night and not let it depart from my mouth and really think about it, it's really an awesome verse that shows a lot of really cool things about God. I think it's really cool. It gives me goosebumps. But however, I don't let whether a verse makes me feel good or not feel good determine what I read in Scripture what I don't. A lot of people who only like certain parts of Scripture, I call that buffet Christianity. Because, you know, they'll eat all the, all the ribs and, and barbecue that you want from the Bible. But when it comes to Brussels sprouts and broccoli, they're not having it. And that's the thing is we've got to take, take the things that we like and even the things that we don't like because all of it's true. Number five. Oh, sorry. Subjectivism. This is the danger of the F train. Everybody remember the F train? Fa or facts, faith, feelings. Okay? Engine, boxcar, caboose. The facts lead everything. Your faith is connected to the facts. Your feelings are connected to your faith. If you put the caboose in front of your engine, you go nowhere. Okay? Facts, faith, feelings. Everybody got that? Yeah, I'm writing it down. Draw a train. Okay, it's fun. Go on to the next one. Relativism. Does the Bible change its meaning over time? If the text meant one thing then, does it mean something different now? Here's a very scary section of Scripture. <clears throat> Go ahead. Here's an example. When Paul says that he does not permit a woman to be a pastor of a church in 1 Timothy 2.12, has that changed? Oh, that, he's sexist. Paul's a chauvinist. Right? Paul doesn't see people equally. Let's do that. Hey, everybody turn to 1 Timothy 2. All you women highlight this. This is very interesting. 1 Timothy 2.12. In fact, I tell you what, let's, let's read some of the context around it. 
Starting in verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Real quick, I'm just going to say this. For believing women, especially believing women that are members of our church, there's no reason that anybody needs to see cleavage. There's no reason. I'm just going to say it real quick. We're a church to focus on the Lord, not on your breasts, okay? And that's what guys think about when they see them. Now, I'm not trying to call anybody out, but notice what it says. It needs to be modesty and self-control. That's how women are to adorn themselves. It says here, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire. Back then, here's the interesting thing. Back then, people would distract from actually dressing up for church. They would actually take strands of gold or strands of jewels or strands of pearl. They would lock it in there and they would weave their hair all throughout it. And they would come and it'd be like, da-da, when they walk in there and be like, whoa, she looks hot today. Yeah, so glad I came to church, you know. If you're coming to church to meet women, stop, okay? We're here to focus on Jesus. So notice it says in verse 10, but... With what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, has that verse changed? Now, Joyce Meyer is the only exception I can see this because she looks like a dude, okay? That's, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> just joking. Just joking. There's some other women I can think of too. Just kidding. Um, just joking. But has this verse changed over time? No. No, why not? Was it just cultural? A lot of times I've heard people, well, that was just the culture at that time. How dare you say that? God doesn't change? One thing specifically, why they might argue that is because he's writing to a specific time. Like, as the letters go to different places, they're addressing specific issues. Okay, so that might be an argument that they use. Right, and one of the things there is a lot of the, um, the new believers were, were abusing their freedoms okay. in Christ to say, well, I don't have to still be submissive. I don't, I'm, I'm free now because I'm, you know... So they were taking that and abusing it. Okay. Maybe they said, I'm free in Christ and started beating the snot out of their husbands. Who knows? You know, maybe they took, like Dave said, maybe they took their freedom and went crazy. Notice the next verse after that. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now let's just stop right there. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Does anybody know approximately how much time transpired between when Paul wrote this and Genesis 1-1 creation? Anybody know? It's believed about 4,400 years transpired between that. Now, notice that Paul takes the argument, and that's the important thing about context. Whenever you're interpreting something, context is key. Notice that whenever Paul wrote it, he takes it back 4,000 years to show how God set it up and designed it. That's how God designed headship in a relationship. And notice that he's, and here we are, the church, 2,000 years after Paul wrote that. Why would that be null and void now 2,000 years after the fact if Paul wrote it 4,400 years after his basis for his argument? That doesn't make any sense. Is everybody following me on that? Everybody hanging with me? Anybody not get it? You don't get it. Okay. Notice what he's saying here. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The reason is, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so the time that Paul wrote it, right, let's just say he wrote it in 60 A.D., 
The time that just transpired was 4,400 BC, okay? So we're dealing with a long way away. He takes the reason for his argument and takes it back 4,000 years. You see what I'm saying? So he's saying the way that God set it up was is that men were to be heads over their wife. Oh, well, that's real uh, crappy to say because we, the society we live in. I tell you, it's not. Some, some of the most godliest women I've ever met in my life are women who said, you know what, I read the Bible and, it, and I did what it said and I found out that I'm way happier in life that way. It's not like Paul's like, I want to make women slaves or look down on me. Man, Jesus never taught anything like that. Jesus was talking to women when it was not fashionable that, that anybody should ever talk to a woman. Jesus was breaking all kinds of uh, gender barriers, if you want to say at that time. Okay? So, let, let's, under, let's understand that Paul's not being a chauvinist or anything like that. Here's what he's saying. It's just not the role that God's called him to. Just like God never called us to carry and bear and nurture a child with love like a woman can. We can't do that. It's impossible. I think if you ask any probably uh, husband and wife older relationship that they have kids, can the husband ever really truly love a child like, a, like, like the wife does? No. It's not happening. Any, 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 anybody in here disagree with that? You disagree? 100%. What? 100%. You 100% disagree with me? Yeah. Wait, I mean, unless I'm you just said. You said love the same or? No, love in a different way. Or love in the same way. I guess I don't, are you talking about on a better level? I'm, I'm talking about that men don't have the capacity to love a child in the way that a woman who carried the child, birthed the child, nurses the child. Maybe that's hitting a personal note there, but <laughs> that's, hard for, that's hard for me to agree with. Okay. I think, I think what he's trying to say, though, like for me, on a male standpoint, I may love a child and love it in a way to where I'm going to teach it the things that I know. And you're going to love it in that manner as your son or your daughter or whatever. But a mother has that nurturing side of her that has a special bond because she actually carried that child for nine months in which we had no personal relationship with that child. There is a difference I there. And I think just, that's just what he's saying. It's I not guess one. my personal experience needs to get out of this because... No, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying that men are going to have an approach in this manner as far as roles have been called. We're getting kind of off the subject, but as far as roles have been called, you're going to have more of a. Let me show you how to fix this. You're going to be more likely to show your kids how to how to fix something in a car than a woman would. She's going to be more likely to. Oh, you fell and you hurt yourself. We're going to be like, put some dirt on it and walk. You know, they're going to be like, here, let me rub it off in hydrogen peroxide and neosporin and let's buy a teddy bear and you know. Women are going to be very, very, very different in personal nurturing like that. That's what I'm talking about. They've been made differently than we have to love children differently. That's what I'm saying. In other words, what I'm saying is God created us different roles. He's not saying that we love our children less. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. He's talking about a different I'm saying it a different way. Okay. I'm just saying it a different way. Man, I almost got hurt. Just kidding. Let's move on to uh, the next one. Number six. Overconfidence. The greatest killer in Bible study is, I've read that before. You come along a passage, you're reading along. Oh, and, and, and here's the thing of Lazarus, or Lazarus when he died. I've read that before. I don't need to read it again. I think that's why, uh, uh, you're probably going in this direction. Go ahead. That's why it's called the living word. Like every time you read it, you can get something that's an excellent point. That's why the Bible is called the living word. Every time you read it, you can get something different from it. It's very good. 
Let's move on, Dave. The next thing. I got a lot of things to cover today, and I'm sorry. We're going to be here for a little bit, but please bear with me. I think you guys will, will learn this. Saying the Bible is a continuous process that will always reap new rewards every time that you read it. Go to the next thing. Common misinterpretations. Number one, money is the root of all evil. That is not what the Bible says. It says, go ahead, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Go on the next one. Number two, Jesus never claimed to be God. He, Jesus, was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Scripture says differently. Go ahead. All religions lead to the same end. No one religion is right. And there is no salvation, uh, sorry, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Work is a sin. The Bible says that I don't have to work. Everybody wants to, come on. Like, forget doctrine stuff, man. I want to go to work. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Those are some common mis misinterpretations that people throw around thinking that the scriptures say certain things that they don't. Go ahead. What's the next one? Literary types in the Bible. I actually put this in your handouts just for you to be able to put uh, in your Bible so that you can look through. There's just a couple that I want to hit on real quick because I don't want to take a lot of time. Everybody wants to talk about Revelation. End of the world, 2012. Oh, is John Cusack going to make it? I don't know. Right? And everybody goes off on those things. How's it all going to happen? How's it all going to unfold? The very first one, apocalyptic. It's dramatic, highly symbolic literature. There's vivid imagery, stark contrast, and the events usually happen on a global scale. You can run down through this and read through it, and you can determine, here's what I'm reading in the Bible. Uh, one, one other one that I want to look at, Dave, if you don't mind going to, is, is uh, the Proverbs. If you go down to Proverb, please. A proverb is a short, pithy statement. It's on the back of your handout. A short, pithy statement of a moral truth reduces life to black and white categories. Frequent parallelism points readers towards the right choice. Parallelism would say uh, something. Let me give you an example. I've actually been studying uh, Proverbs over the past few days. Uh, and I tell you, there's a lot of wisdom from it. Uh, parallelism would be like this. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Do you guys see the parallelism? Don't forsake uh, father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Here's the reason why. They're graceful garland for your head, pendants for your neck. They have a parallelism. In other words, two ways of saying the exact same thing and using imagery in order to do it. So this is for you to tuck in your Bible, and any time that you're reading, if you need help figuring out how maybe you should interpret this out. This will help you. Go ahead and go to the next one, Dave. The next little section of things that we got. Yeah. Ah, good one. Everybody take your Bibles. Turn to Revelation. I was in Owensboro yesterday. And um, please understand that when I say this, I'm, I'm not calling this man out saying that he's going to hell or anything like that. Uh, but I think this is important for us to do the work on our own. Uh, his name is Francis Chan. He's a pastor of a, of a church in California somewhere. He graduated from Master Seminary where John MacArthur is the president. Um, and if you know anything about me, you know I don't agree with MacArthur's theology at all. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a book called Crazy Love. People have been going absolutely nuts 
about this book. I went out and got it, started reading it, and it started out first two chapters. It was doing pretty good. I got in chapters three and four and almost puked. So uh, I think it's important for us to look at something because what we're going to look at is one person's interpretation of a passage of Scripture. In the back of the book, there are some questions that are asked. When I was in Owensboro, this girl had a copy of the book, and I said, have you read that? Oh, I've read it. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. I said, really? You should read the question and answer part in the back because he contradicts himself. And I want you I want to see if you guys can pick out the contradiction. Now, here's, the, here's where we're going with this. this we're actually putting uh, footing on what we're learning, okay? When we read the Bible... And we, when we understand, we meditate on what it says. When we encounter what other people's opinions are about it or their interpretations about it, it helps us realize, do we trust that opinion or is there something wrong with it? And that's the reason why Christians are to be discerning about not just unbelievers, not just about things of the world. We're supposed to be discerning about the things of Scripture and how people take them. So here's the question that is asked in the back of the book. You talk about what it means to be a lukewarm Christian. <coughs> You make a bold statement that churchgoers who are lukewarm are not Christians. We will not see them in heaven. Now, anybody here had a bad day since they've known Christ? Yeah, anybody had a bad week? Bad month? Bad year? Some of them are like, dude, I'm having a bad life, right? <laughs> Sometimes it happens. But we still have faith in Christ. And I think this is important. Notice what his statement says. Lukewarm Christians, we will not see them in heaven. In other words, people who are lukewarm in their faith, they're not even saved. And he goes through in this chapter 4 about a big thing about a lukewarm Christian does this. A really on fire for God Christian really acts this way. So it says here, how do you explain this? How does grace play into this statement? Let's go to the answer. Here's his answer. I explain it through the passage of Revelation 3 and look at the passive objectively. Now, here's what's interesting. In Revelation chapter 3, everybody look down at verse 14. This is the church to Laodicea. And you can, I encourage you, in fact, your homework for the next week is to take just the church to Laodicea here and go through, observe and interpret, observe and interpret. And, and let's read real carefully what it says. And to the angel, and I'll just help you out here, angel is also the Greek word that means messenger. And they believe that, that this was addressed to the pastor or the messenger of that church for him to read to the church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And here's what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Uh, the ESV says this, and I don't necessarily care for this translation because it's different. Would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, I would rather you be cold or hot. And it says here, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, sorry, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Now let's stop right there. Dave, if you can, back it up to verse 15. Number one, let's just ask ourselves, where's the, the fun little paper at? Who is speaking? Anybody know? Who is the faithful and true witness? It's Christ. 
Christ is telling John to write this down. You find that out by reading the first chapter of Revelation. Now, who is he speaking to? The church where? In Laodicea. What makes up a church? Is it a building? What? Christians. Believers. People that are part of the congregation. Believers in Christ. People that are unified. We're all unified under one big thing. And what is that? A belief in Christ. So let's, let's all ask ourselves then. I know you're what? Works. Is salvation by works? No. No. Not at all. You're exactly right, Sam. No. Thank you. But seriously, how does he four? Two? He's two. He has more good theology than a lot of people I talk to on a weekly basis. No. You cannot do anything for salvation. So notice what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Now do we fully know what in the world that means? I interpret it. I look at it as you're not either on one side or the other. Go ahead, Leah. How did you find all that out? Um, church last week. Awesome. <laughs> okay, where she went to church at last week, she found it out. That's very. And here's the thing. When, and of course, your pastor did a study on on the passage. When you do a study on the passage, these are the things that you find out. As we're to interpret this, notice that Jesus is telling John to write this in terms that they would understand. But notice. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. Go to the next one. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Is there anything in the text whatsoever that tells us that being spit out of the mouth has to do with eternal damnation in hell? Does it have anything to do with you didn't get a ticket on the train to heaven? There's nothing in this passage to tell us that. Now, go back to his quote. This is where he pulls that belief that we will not see lukewarm Christians in heaven. Okay, so God says that the lukewarm will be spit out of his mouth. And that, this dramatically, and that is dramatically different than God embracing you and welcoming you into heaven. The lukewarm still need to be saved. How can we say a lukewarm Christian is saved? Go to the next one. Salvation has nothing to do with my performance. <laughs> do you guys see why I get my panties in a bunch about this? Do you guys understand why I get so frustrated about this kind of stuff? If I'm truly saved, notice this. <clears throat> if I'm truly saved, then my actions are going to show. Although the New Testament, all, all through the New Testament, a person's faith is shown through his actions. New Testament teachings are clear that someone who loves God and doesn't obey God is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now stop for just one stinking moment, okay? Let's ask ourselves, and, and here's the reason why we're talking about this. This is his interpretation of this verse. Does anything about being spit out of the mouth have anything to do with your life being over in that verse? No, it doesn't, does it? 
Now, if you compare that to how he warns other churches, like when he warns the church of Ephesus, behold, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. If you do a historical study, you find out in 270 AD that the church was ruined and just stopped being done. He dispersed them. Christ removed their lampstand because they did not repent and come back to their first love. Has nothing to do with the believer coming to the end of their life because he's addressing a general assembly of people. We can only conclude that everybody in the church was lukewarm and therefore everybody wasn't saved according to what he has to say. Now, now notice, salvation has nothing to do with my performance. But notice his defense here having to do with actions. If I'm truly saved, then my actions are going to show it. How many people believe that? But it depends on what how are you going to judge action. Nobody. I mean, somebody might stumble really bad and they feel really bad about it and they're praying. You could see them praying and think, well, how come you're not feeding the poor? You're just praying. Or how come you're not doing this or that? How do you judge? I mean, he might be brokenhearted. Well, why are you sitting there feeling sorry for yourself? Okay. You know, it's like, how do you judge action? Let me ask you this. That's a good point. Let me ask you this. We did this thing where we did the coffee and, and, and not all of you showed up. Should I conclude that all of you aren't really saved and I need to share Christ with all of you? No. I was sleeping. I was shopping. I had stuff to do. But just because your actions didn't, you know, you see what I'm, do you see where the confusion comes in in this type of interpretation? What do you want to say, Grant? Well, just that those who are justified don't necessarily progress at the same level of sanctification as everyone else. So their actions aren't necessarily going to be the same. Okay. That's exactly right. Not everybody grows at the same rate. The problem is, is that we've all made our job to be fruit inspectors. How's your Christian walk going? <laughs> see what I'm saying? Nick will tell me about it, and I'll write, well, you... You regulate about 70 on the saved scale. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> but if works has nothing to do with it, how in the world can we make that kind of conclusion? It's absolutely impossible. Fruits of the Spirit. Somebody name them off to me. Just, uh, Galatians 5, 22, 23. Oh my gosh. Love, joy, Hold on. Love, joy, peace, patience, <laughs> kindness, long-suffering, long <laughs> self-control. What was the one before self-control? <laughs> Gentleness and self-control. Name, name it. Name it. Name, hold on, everybody, shh, real quick. Say it really loud, please. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Question. Do all of those have to be outwardly shown in order for them to be valid? No. Can you love somebody and never say it? Yeah. Can you be self-controlled? Usually when you're self-controlled, it's because it's you didn't do something, right? It's when you're out of control that you're doing something. So notice that fruits of the Spirit can totally be shown to God... And not everybody else who's seeking to be a fruit inspector to validate people's salvation. Well, conversely, a lot of times, like, what we really care, but then they don't do a good job of like giving people direction for it. Because so, you, you talked to a lot of people, oh, I'm saved. I said a prayer when I was six. Right. Because there's no direction. So a lot of people go to the opposite end of, you know, I'm truly saying my actions go to show, whereas I said a prayer, that's all I need to do. Right. And along the same lines with that. And I think this is kind of where you're, where, you're, where you're going with this. Is One of the biggest problems with, with the church is discipleship. We lead people to Christ, then how do we get them to grow in Christ? You know, that was one of the biggest pitfalls of the revival movements that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They'd come in, roll in a wagon, and they would preach the gospel. Lots of people get saved. Tons of people come forward. Nobody got plugged into a church, and the caravan would move on to someplace else. And you got a bunch of baby Christians that are just sitting there like, I don't know how to grow, you know. And they're just stuck. And they're just absolutely stuck. So, let's, Billy, bring it. Uh, 
Get it? I mean, could it be possible also that they're confusing faith and salvation? Yes. And, and we're just looking at James 2.14, where, you know, the one where it says... Oh, you don't want to get in that. Okay. Why? We can. <laughs> well, I'm not going to wrestle you. I think everybody wants to go home. <laughs> we can get up here and wrestle. That'd be entertaining. <laughs> no, I'm just saying a lot of people use that. Right, a lot of people. We want to talk about salvation, but that's faith, and like you said, that has something to do with growth. Right. Well, you know, and that, like you're talking about getting plugged in. And that's and that's what you have to remember about James. Everybody has always said that that, that James and Paul were like arch rivals. Okay, it, it it was like you know Minnesota and Green Bay are now. Okay, and that's not true. They were both teaching the same thing. Salvation is totally by grace. What James was approaching is no one knows you're saved if you're not doing good stuff. They don't have a clue. And the way that your salvation is validated before us is the fact that we're doing good works. That's how we can know truly that people are saved. But let's be honest, a lot of times it's none of our business. People say they're a Christian, treat them like they're a Christian. Heather. Well, I was just reading where it says someone who loves God and doesn't obey God is a liar and truth is not in him. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Is that what he's saying? When we become Christians, we're no longer sinners? That's, that's really interesting. Uh, the teachings are clear that someone who loves God and doesn't obey God is a liar. Do you always obey God? No. I mean, then it, Did you lose your salvation? Is it like trying to find your keys in the couch? No. Good point. Dave. Um, I was just going to say, um, going on that, you, you made the, the, the key point of it. That's how we know. Yeah. That's how we know. It doesn't matter if we know that some, I mean, it helps. You know, you see someone doing good works, you're like, and that affirms for us that, you know, that we have a, a fellow believer. Right. But it doesn't matter if, if, if it's given to us because what truly matters is that person's relationship with Christ. Exactly. Let's say, let's say after this, <coughs> excuse me, let's say that after this, some of you leave and some of you go down to, where's Eric? Re raw. Okay, you go down to you go down to Re-Raw, Okay, and let's say one of you orders a beer, and I show up and I walk in like 20 minutes later. Hey, Pastor! Right, and I was like, Oh, you're not saved. You're going to hell. Now let's be honest. Have I have I have I brought a lot of legalism to the scriptures? Who am I to validate somebody's salvation or not? Well, is it wrong for me to just take that and say? You're going to hell because of something like that? Now, the only thing I can think of is that Brian last week is going to hell because of what he said about Kentucky being Samaria. But <laughs> that's the only thing. I'm just kidding, man. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> that's a good interpretation. That's a good interpretation. So, let's finish up this quote real quick. Go ahead and go to the next slide. It's not popular to question somebody's actions and salvation. And Scripture tells us to test ourselves and see if we're really in the faith. I believe 100% in grace that I did nothing and I'm completely saved by the cross. By the grace of God, we believe and are saved. If someone has the Holy Spirit in them, there will be fruit and there will not be a lukewarm life. Now, this is his interpretation of the scripture. I wanted to share it with you, not to call him out. I totally believe this dude's saved. If he's got good stuff going on in his life, right? That's a joke. I totally believe this guy's saved. I totally do. But do you guys see where if you read a passage of scripture and you want to take something out of it that you want to take out of it and not read it for what it actually says, you can get it a little twisted and messed up. 
let me give you another good for instance. At the end of the passage about, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. At the end it says, but she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, hope, and love. Now, does that mean that if she doesn't bear children, she's not going to heaven? Ah, interesting homework for the next week. Go back to that and read it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Very interesting. Now, anything about interpretation? It doesn't mean if she has a child, she's automatically saved? No. That's the questions we got to ask ourselves. Does that mean that if you have a child, that you're automatically saved? I better go out and get pregnant. Let me find me a man. You know? <laughs> what, is it, well, how, what does it mean? Well, we're not here to answer what it means. Can I, we're, no. Can I throw out a no. Nugget? No. Okay. Keep your nugget to yourself. <laughs> Now, real quick, before I know, I know that this is like really like informal kind of teaching thing, and I'm not really just like trying to blow your mind with scripture or anything like that. But this is in order to help you as you read, as you read through and ask yourself, how should I take this verse? What was going on at the time? What kind of literary style is this? As as we're ending here, anybody got any questions about interpretation? Hopefully, I've given you some things that will kind of help you and spark some curiosity. Any questions? None? Okay, cool. I'll tell you what. Let's pray. And we will sing. And then we will go home. Real quick, if you're on the preaching team, we have a meeting right afterwards. So please stick around. Let's pray. God, I just ask, Lord, that as we've we've looked at uh, different parts of your word, that God, we would be encouraged. Good Lord. Come on, Eric. I'm praying to Jesus. Now, if anybody's not saved by their works, right there, just ruin it for him, right? Just kidding. Sorry. Let's let's try it again. Got God on hold. Let's pick back up the line. Father, just ask, Lord, uh, that you would be with us as we read the Bible. Help to give us discerning eyes, discerning hearts, to seek answers from you about the Scriptures. Pray, Lord, uh, that you would give us peace as we read. And, Father, when we have questions, let us write them down. Let us talk about them. Let us ask those questions. Uh, Let us really dig into the Word and, and really try to understand what you're trying to tell us about the finer points of living the Christian life, salvation, Jesus and, and His life. And, and, and Father, I just pray, Lord, that we would be knowledgeable about You and Your plan for uh, history. And uh, we just lift this up to You and pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.